You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Hello again, friends. What we are doing here together is the important work of constructing and defending a Christian spirituality in which God might truly be said to be all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. This means believing in a God who is pure light and whose pure light will eventually overcome all of our darknesses. We've already seen how we can construct a biblical foundation from this viewpoint from the scriptures. We found several scriptures which add up to a picture in which God is a loving parent to all, who sincerely wants to save all, who in Christ has covered the sin of all, who is sovereign over all, and who will be all in all. And further, how we can see evidence of a loving God who casts off no one forever, but who also may require in certain instances that the consequences of sin must be paid down to the last penny. So what we are talking about here is a situation in which everyone finally gets saved, but no one gets away with anything either. It will, as they say, all come out in the wash in the end. Although our scenario of a universal salvation in Christ finds support in the Bible, it also must contend with certain scriptures which seem to go against it, scriptures which seem to suggest that some will be lost forever. The title for today's episode is Burned, Disowned, and Unforgiven, which are not only three biblical descriptions for the consequences of sin, but also a fantastic title for the next great Western movie to be made. And so in this episode, we will consider three scriptures which contain three very daunting images, being cast into a fiery furnace, being disowned before the Heavenly Father, and being found guilty of the unforgivable sin. The first passage is from Matthew 13:49 through 50, where Jesus warns, This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The second passage is from Matthew 10:33, where Jesus warns, But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. The third passage is from Matthew 12:30-32. It reads, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. All of these scriptures seem very daunting to the idea that all will finally be saved. So, making an argument for Christian universalism means finding a way to understand them in light of a coming universal salvation. We'll start with the blazing furnace. And the first thing we can do is look at an interesting detail about the fiery furnace. And that's, what is it that the fiery furnace produces? According to Jesus, it produces weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, it's not really a physical fire which produces physical ash, 
but a spiritual fire which produces spiritual remorse. Jesus did not say, and they will be thrown into the fiery furnace in order to be reduced to ashes. He said they'd be thrown into the fiery furnace in order to experience weeping and gnashing of teeth, which I read as the kind of remorse that sets in when you have to face hard truths about yourself, about who you've become, and what you've done along the way to get you there. As I heard it said one time, the truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. Or, to put it more in the context of this passage, the truth will set you free, but first it will set you on fire. And so it seems to me that this is the kind of misery we are dealing with here, the kind of misery that truth brings, not for the purpose of obliteration and non-existence, but for the purpose of working towards a time of true repentance and spiritual liberation from the sinful attachments which we have accrued in this lifetime. I'm also reminded of the situation of the rich man in Hades in the parable Jesus tells, where the rich man is in Hades and he says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. Now, if the rich man was really in a physical fire, he would not have lasted very long at all before he was overcome and dead. A little bit of water would have been very little help for him. What the fire does in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus seems to be similar to what the fire of the fiery furnace does, produce weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this brings us to another instance of a situation which produces weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is from Matthew 8, verses 11 through 12, where Jesus declares, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This passage comes from a time when a Roman military officer, a centurion, has come to Jesus on behalf of a valued person in his household, perhaps a servant, who is suffering. Jesus offers to come with him to heal the suffering one, but the military officer tells him there is no need for that, because all he has to do is say the word, and it will be done because as a military officer, he knows how authority and orders work. Jesus then says that this Roman centurion demonstrates greater faith than anyone in Israel. And he then tops that shocking statement off by adding that many will come to the great coming feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom, the ones who you would expect to take center stage, will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There it is again, weeping and gnashing of teeth. We're not talking about an outer darkness, which will just be scary, but an outer darkness which turns out to be a grueling encounter with the full force of truth. The point of all of this is that God's judgments, whether characterized as a blazing fire or an outer darkness, produce intense remorse. Neither in the outer darkness nor in the blazing furnace can you escape the truth of your situation everything becomes blindingly clear. The truth of the evil you have embraced, the damage you have done, it all becomes obvious. How long do the fire and the darkness last? My guess is that they last as long as they need to in order to do their work. Probably some will need to be in it for much longer than others. 
But the basic idea is that the blazing furnace and the outer darkness produce remorse. And at the hands of a loving God, true remorse is a necessary part of the wayward soul's journey back home. All right, now let's move on to the threat of being disowned in judgment, which seems to be directly threatened in a couple of places. The first is found in Matthew 10.33, where we find this warning from Jesus. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. So, that sounds pretty ominous. If you disown me, Jesus says, I'll disown you before my Father in heaven. And once that's done, it's hard to see how there's any coming back from that. However, once again, we are helped to get a better sense of this verse when we look at the verb tense in the passage. The verb translated here as disown is arnesitai and it occurs only one time in the New Testament. Sometimes it is also translated as deny. The tense of this verb implies an ongoing action which triggers an ongoing response. The concordant literal version does a good job capturing this ongoing sense. It reads, Yet who should ever be disowning me in front of men, I will also be disowning him in front of my Father who is in the heavens. So as I see it, what is being said simply is something like, as long as people are disowning me before others, I will be disowning them before the Father. Jonathan Mitchell, in his translation of the New Testament, renders the verse this way, Yet, whoever may at some point say no to or contradict me or would decline me or can deny or disown me in front of humans, I myself also will proceed to say no to or contradict him or will continue to decline, disown, or deny him in front of my Father, the one within and in union with the heavens, or in the midst of the atmospheres. I like the way both of these translations capture the ongoingness of the situation. As long as we are in the position of denying or disowning the Son in front of others, the Son will be in the position of denying and disowning us before the Father. But that also leaves open the possibility that once we stop denying Jesus before others, then Jesus will stop denying us before the Father. Whatever exactly is going on here with the tense of the verbs and with this situation, there is something more obvious which I think clears things up, and that's the time that Peter, on the night Jesus was arrested, ended up denying Jesus before others not once or twice, but three times. We find this described in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, beginning with verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow is with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. So that's quite a bit of denying and disowning Jesus, even disowning Jesus with an oath and with curses. But Peter was eventually reinstated after the resurrection when Jesus takes him aside and asks him three times if he loves him. So 
Denying Jesus is a very serious thing, which is one of the reasons I don't think anyone can be fully reconciled to God while denying Jesus. And the same thing can be said about the Holy Spirit as well. We can't be reconciled to God while rejecting the Holy Spirit. Jesus makes this clear in a saying recorded in Matthew 12, 30-32, which also has to do with the unforgivable sin. It reads, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is a well-known passage because it contains the dreaded, unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And any time our minds become aware of a very specific line beyond which there is no hope of return, we can become fixated about it. Thomas Talbot, in his book, The Inescapable Love of God, gives a good example of this from his childhood. He remembers a situation, writing, After a long and sleepless night just before his first junior varsity basketball game, my friend confessed, that in his frustration during the early morning hours he had cursed the Holy Spirit. Had he not feared the consequences of such a curse, he presumably would never have uttered it in the first place. But once he had uttered it, he began to wonder whether his condition had then become hopeless. It is a wonderful example of how our fears can sometimes consign us to a prison of our own making. I like that way of putting it. Our own fears can sometimes consign us to a prison of our own making. And this becomes especially true if we are believing that God has some kind of hope-ending tripwire that we can cross. So what can we say about blaspheming the Holy Spirit? We can start by noting that in this saying of Jesus, Jesus refers to a time and another time about an age and an age to come. He says that anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. So Jesus speaks of this age and of the age to come. What I hear Jesus saying is that as long as we are denying the work of the Holy Spirit in any age, be it this age or any coming age, we cannot be forgiven, cannot be fully reconciled with God. Something has to be done about it. And so rejecting the Holy Spirit can't ever be forgiven in the sense that God can't say, okay, don't worry about it. You're forgiven. Just keep on rejecting the Holy Spirit. No problem. There's a certain path that forgiveness must take. To quote from Thomas Talbot again, If sin is anything that separates us from God and from each other, and if God is to be all in all, then he must sooner or later destroy all sin and thus remove every stain from his creation. According to the New Testament as a whole, God has a twofold strategy I want to suggest for accomplishing this end. On the one hand, he sent his Son in the flesh to defeat, in some unexplained mystical way, the powers of darkness and to pioneer the way of salvation, see Hebrews 2 verse 10, a way of repentance, forgiveness, and personal sacrifice. On the other hand, for those who refuse to step into this ordained system of repentance, forgiveness, and personal sacrifice, he has an alternative strategy. In their estrangement from God, they will experience his love as a consuming fire, that is, as wrath, as punishment, and in the end, as a means of correction. 
So in that sense, they will literally pay for their sin, and God will never, not in this age and not in the age to come, forgive or set aside the final payment they owe, which is voluntarily to step inside the ordained system of repentance, forgiveness, and personal sacrifice. As Jesus said using the analogy of someone being thrown into prison, Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. See Matthew 5.25 I like the way that Talbot puts all of this, and I again want to recommend to you his wonderful book, The Inescapable Love of God, which he has recently revised and improved in a second edition. Okay, we've been at all of this for about long enough now. To sum all of this up, we can't forever reject Jesus or the Holy Spirit. At some point, we must finally be made to see and experience our unrepentant errors and be set on a path to gladly give up our rejection of the Son and the Spirit. Ultimately, if it is God's plan to finally be all in all, and if this plan was God's plan from the beginning, and if God is all-knowing, then God has always had a way of bringing about reconciliation with all of God's children. Whether we take the easy way or the hard path is up to us but our final reconciliation has always been up to God. So, I encourage you to avoid the hard path and to fully affirm both Jesus and the Holy Spirit and to embrace life in God's kingdom right now as you follow the way of Jesus, especially as he taught us in his Sermon on the Mount. And I also encourage you to trust that we've all been included in a grace that saves all. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.